What's up, everyone? And welcome back to Black and Cold, a true crime podcast for the overshadowed. My name is Nichelle. I am your host, and I am back this week with a brand new episode. The case that I will be sharing with you guys today comes out of the state of California. And I'm actually just going to jump right into it here. This is BNC's episode number 72, and this is the murder of Kimberly Robertson. On Saturday, April 5th, 2014, sometime after 6.30 a.m., a cyclist was riding around near Park Boulevard in Oakland, California. Their usual bike ride seemed to be pretty normal until they rode on 3rd Avenue going past the F.M. Smith Recreation Center, and this is when they came across a very gruesome discovery. Laying right on the curb in front of them was a young African-American woman. Her face was swollen, according to court documentation, and different parts of her body were badly bruised. This cyclist was under the impression that this woman might still be breathing and he could get her some help, so he called 911. Authorities of the Oakland Police Department responded to the scene at 7.07 a.m., And when they arrived, they could quickly tell that this young lady was no longer alive. Now, law enforcement felt this way due to the fact that rigor mortis had already set in. And just to give you guys a quick definition here, which you may know what this means already or you may not know, rigor mortis is the stiffening of the joints and muscles, which this will happen to somebody after they have passed on. The victim was confirmed dead at the scene, and due to the apparent injuries on her, it appeared that she had been beaten to death. As officers of the Oakland PD canvassed the area where she had been found, they were able to recover the victim's ID, and she was identified as 23-year-old Kimberly Robertson. Not too far from where Kimberly was discovered, Patrol officers then found a children's sweatshirt in addition to an Apple charger along with a receipt from the hardware store Lowe's. They weren't too sure at that moment if these items were connected, but they decided to take them in and collect them as evidence in any case that they were. 23-year-old Kimberly Robertson was actually born and raised in Texas. She had moved to Oakland, California only six months before her death so she could pursue an education in criminal justice. Kimberly has been described by her sister Marquita as having an extremely outgoing personality in which people really enjoyed being around her because she was a lot of fun. 
Besides being a loving sister, Kimberly was also the mother to a two-year-old daughter who she was with all the time and she loved more than anything in this world. When Kimberly and her sister Marquita were very young, they tragically lost their own mother, who was killed by her own partner at the time. And Marquita actually explained to ID See No Evil in her interview that basically this, as anyone could imagine, greatly affected them growing up. A short time after moving to Oakland, Kimberly enrolled in the criminal justice program at Harrow College in San Francisco, and she knew her responsibilities as not only a student, but as a mother. However, even though this was the case, Kimberly was still a young woman in her 20s, and she still wanted to experience some nights of fun, as any other hardworking person looks forward to doing. When law enforcement looked into the immediate family members of their victim, this is when Kimberly's sister was unfortunately told the horrific news. When asked if she knew anyone that would hurt her, Marquita says she really didn't have an idea who would do such a thing, and she was nonetheless shocked that something like this even happened to Kimberly. But Marquita was also able to provide detectives with her sister's agenda for that day leading into the night. So this helped authorities with tracking Kimberly's steps, which could hopefully lead them to finding out who did this to her. So on Friday, April 4th, 2014, the day before she was discovered, Kimberly wanted to have a night out. And Marquita says during the day, her sister went to get her hair done, and I believe she got her nails done as well, basically preparing herself for that evening. Now, that evening, Marquita agreed to watch Kimberly's daughter, and sometime that night, Kimberly had went out with the guy she had been seeing for some time named Danny, which I'm just going to add that Danny has also been referred to as Kimberly's roommate in the appeals court documentation. Marquita stated in her interview that she told authorities she did not believe Danny would ever do such a thing to her sister because they had known each other for a while. But once it was made known that Kimberly was out with him last and he appeared to be in some type of romantic relationship with her, of course, authorities were suspicious and they wanted to have a conversation with him immediately. When Danny was brought in for an interview, he explained to the Oakland PD the account of events that happened that night. According to Danny, him, Kimberly, and some of their other friends went to a spot called Lakeside Lounge sometime around 11 o'clock p.m. on the night of April 4th. Danny stressed that Kimberly was her usual self throughout the night while they were there. She was happy and her mood was upbeat. Everyone was drinking, dancing, and having a good time, which then Danny proceeded to tell law enforcement that at around 2 o'clock a.m., now the early hours of the morning of the 5th, as him and Kimberly were leaving, making their way back to his car, the duo got into a heated argument. According to Danny's account, the two of them were clearly intoxicated and he didn't feel it was safe 
for either one of them to drive. He said that Kimberly was angry about this and she insisted that they take his car. But Danny was just not with that. And he explained that he decided to call a cab instead. When the cab arrived to pick the couple up, Danny went on to say that he got in the vehicle, but Kimberly refused to go home that way. Eventually, Danny himself got frustrated with the whole situation, and he ended up getting out of the cab. And from here, the driver of the taxi just drove away from them both. Danny and Kimberly continued to argue at this point, in the middle of the parking lot that they were in, until Kimberly just got fed up, she stormed off and went to a nearby bus stop, where she sat down by herself. And just so you guys are keeping up, this is Danny's account of events. Like, this is what he is explaining to authorities. According to the Court of Appeals documentation, Danny, who said he had too much to drink that night, he began to throw up. And after feeling a little bit better, he decided to move his car closer to the bus stop that Kimberly had walked to. He told detectives he parked across the street from where she was, expecting that Kimberly would just see him eventually and come back to his vehicle after she had cooled down. As time began to go by, though, and Kimberly never returned to Danny's car, this is when he explained that he dozed off, fell asleep, and he did not wake up until hours later. Remember, Kimberly had already been found just around the 6.30 a.m. mark, which was either before or right around the time Danny says he woke up. So authorities were very suspicious of his story that seemed to be too perfect, and it was just an odd one in general. But just because Oakland investigators felt this way, they really didn't have any reason to arrest Danny. So in order for them to even try to confirm what he was saying was true, they decided to track down some video surveillance. So from here, law enforcement was able to go to Lakeside Lounge, where Danny and Kimberly supposedly went that night. And fortunately, they were able to retrieve footage on the evening in question. Thus far, Danny's story was looking good, and it has been corroborated, as authorities could see him and Kimberly entering this establishment together around 11.30 p.m. on the evening of the 4th. But according to See No Evil interviews with the detectives who worked on this case, Danny and Kimberly sort of had a strange interaction together as they were at the Lakeside Lounge. It appeared, although they arrived together, their vibes just seemed a little bit off. Now, just viewing this alone was a red flag for authorities as their victim, who they were looking at, was now deceased, and she didn't appear to be the happiest in the hours before she was found. However, they continue to look through the video surveillance to help them answer any more of their lingering questions. At around 1.30 a.m. into the morning of the 5th, 
Danny and Kimberly could be seen leaving Lakeside Lounge together, but they were not alone. There was another person who walked out of the club with them, going into the same direction where Danny had mentioned his car was parked in a lot. Authorities wanted to find out who this person might be, in any case they had information on what happened to Kimberly, and ultimately they were able to learn that this third individual was a friend of Danny's. Now, this third person told investigators of the police department that when they all left the Lakeside Lounge together, he actually drove Kimberly and Danny to Danny's car. According to Investigation Discovery, this friend also backed up the fact that Kimberly was not in the greatest mood as they all left the lounge that morning. The next bit of video that law enforcement tracked down from here was from the parking lot where Danny's car was at, which was located at a local Walgreens. And as they were looking through that, from the time frame that him and Kimberly would have been dropped off by his friend, they were able to see exactly when that happened. In addition to them being dropped off, the arguing that occurred between the couple was also seen on video, which then followed with that taxi pulling up in this parking lot right around 2 o'clock a.m. Danny and Kimberly could then be seen getting inside. Just shortly after Kimberly got in, though, she could be seen exiting the taxi, in which it appeared she refused to go home that way, as Danny originally explained. From here, Danny then exited this cab, which is what he previously told authorities in his interview, and quickly after that, the cab can be seen driving away from them both. So just going off of Danny's account of events here and the story that he gave during his interrogation, it seemed to be panning out, but the police knew they had to continue watching all of the surveillance that they could get to fully make sure it really panned out. So after the taxi drove away from the Walgreens parking lot, Danny and Kimberly could be seen still arguing on camera. And then suddenly she does walk away from their conversation and she goes and sits at a nearby bus stop. As surveillance footage from these local businesses nearby were able to capture Danny's vehicle after he had moved, it was clearly seen that he did, in fact, park his car across the street from where Kimberly was sitting, which was sometime around or after 2 o'clock a.m. Danny parked his car, he pulled it up legally at the curb, in which on camera, the car's headlights can then be seen going off. Now, this part here is critical because if you guys remember, this is when he previously told authorities he fell asleep. So if at any moment Danny got out before the time frame that he says he did, his alibi clearly had a hole in it. The Oakland PD detectives explained that at this point, they made sure they watched the footage very closely within all of the hours that were passing by and they did not see Danny get out once. 
from the video surveillance they were looking at, which I believe was from a local bank, not only could they see Danny, who was still in his vehicle with no movement, they could also see who they believed was Kimberly across the street at this bus stop. So clearly his car, Danny's car, was right across the street from where she was for this camera to be able to capture both people. All right, so law enforcement went through this particular video surveillance as the time was elapsing and everything. But as they kept looping it back, they noticed something a little odd. And it wasn't Danny. At this point, he didn't even become a main point of interest anymore. Authorities explained that they kept noticing this red Toyota SUV that seemed to be circling the vicinity of the bus stop where Kimberly was sitting. And this was starting from when Danny first initially got to that curb and parked his car. And if you think about it, that really just had to be minutes behind Kimberly when she stormed off and walked away. As the video was being rewinded and rewinded and looked at very closely, law enforcement did confirm that they saw this same red SUV circling around this bus stop more than once. And when they caught it going around after the first time, now it appeared that another individual was in this vehicle. So even though the surveillance was quite grainy, this is after two o'clock in the morning. And we got to keep in mind, it's not like multiple people are outside just chilling. So authorities were assuming that this person who was now in this mysterious SUV that passed by this bus stop was Kimberly. They needed to find the person who owned this red Toyota SUV, right? But because the surveillance wasn't the best quality, the license plate could not be seen clearly. Detectives then went back and asked Kimberly's loved ones if they could recall anyone that she knew who drove a car like this, but none of them did. It was now officially a thought that there was a possibility that Kimberly might have been abducted. And as more information started to come out about the details of her death, it seemed this could have been likely. The forensic pathologist who performed the autopsy on 23-year-old Kimberly Robertson determined that she had died due to blunt force trauma to her head. As mentioned, she had a numerous amount of bruises all over her body that were consistent with what looked like to be as a result from punching, kicking, and stomping. Kimberly not only suffered from what looked like a horrific beating, but when she was examined by this pathologist, court documentation states that her top was pulled up, her bra was not fastened correctly, and the napkin was removed from her undergarments, which gave the indication that she may have been sexually assaulted as well. As DNA was taken from Kimberly's body to determine if a sexual assault had actually occurred, authorities continued their investigation into the movements of this red Toyota SUV. And they felt positive that if the person in this vehicle 
did something to Kimberly that early morning, they would have had to eventually go to the area where her body was discovered. So with that, investigators decided to pay a visit to the FM Recreation Center, located on the 1900 block of 3rd Avenue. They queued up the footage during the early morning hours of April 5th, after they saw that second individual in this unknown red SUV, and before the 6.30 a.m. Uh, time frame, as that is around when Kimberly's body was found. And just as the 3 o'clock a.m. mark approaches, a similar red SUV could now be seen in this area near the rec center. And a closer look at it confirmed that the vehicle was actually a Toyota 4Runner. Although the model of the car was now solidified, the license plate was still not able to be seen clearly. But this did give law enforcement some type of time frame that would indicate possibly when Kimberly's body may have been dumped. Now, detectives decided to take a long shot and they went back to the evidence that they collected at the crime scene, which included a purse with a broken strap, an Apple charger, and a Lowe's receipt. As they examined the receipt, they noticed that whoever made this purchase brought garden supplies, and the location of this particular Lowe's was in Elk Grove near Sacramento, over 100 miles away from where Kimberly had been discovered. Still not knowing if there was even a connection Authorities continued to pursue this lead, and they went to this Lowe's location just to see if they would maybe spot a red Toyota 4Runner on the day that this specific purchase was made, which was reported to be about two weeks before the murder. The video from this Lowe's was available to law enforcement, and within moments of them looking through it, they spotted a red Toyota 4Runner entering the parking lot which could not have been a coincidence. Two men could then be seen exiting the vehicle, in which one of them had a pretty distinct look because his hair was locked and his dreads were wrapped in a bun. Moving on to the next bit of surveillance from inside of this store, detectives were hoping to have a clear picture of what these two men looked like but that unfortunately did not happen. And though they could not see these faces clearly, they were able to confirm that the purchase made of this garden supplies was done with a credit card. So from here, they got in touch with the credit card company. Now, the account owner of the card used to make this purchase came back to a woman in her 50s according to detective interviews on investigation discovery. But I have not been able to confirm in my research if this card was stolen or if this was someone that either one of these men knew. But either way, as authorities were getting the recent transactions back from this particular account, just hours before the purchase at Lowe's, they determined that a purchase was made at a Carl's Jr., the fast food spot. Obviously, investigators um, went to the Carl's Jr. and they looked at footage that they were able to retain from there. 
And gratefully, this place had good enough video quality where the license plate of this Toyota 4Runner was able to be read. The plate number came back registered to a 40-year-old man from Oakland named Prince Frank Setsi, or Sese. I am really not sure how to pronounce his last name correctly here, you guys. I actually heard a few different enunciations from the sources that I used, so I am unable to confirm which one is correct. And don't eat me up for this, y'all. But once authorities were able to do a background check on Prince or Frank, they learned that he was not a stranger to law enforcement. He was originally from the West African country of Ghana. He moved here in 2007, and he was in fact married with three children. On April 17th of 2014, 12 days after Kimberly was found, Oakland PD investigators decided to go to the area where Prince lived to hand out flyers of Kimberly, hoping that they would, you know, cross paths with him, and get a reaction after he was shown a photo. They canvassed the area, they spoke to different people, and eventually they went to Prince's home, where they asked if he knew any information about their young victim's death. According to the See No Evil episode and a few articles, Prince completely denied recognizing who Kimberly was. But at this point, it was pretty apparent that he had at least seen her with the assumption that he too picked Kimberly up. So clearly he wasn't telling the truth. The next day on April 18th, Prince was arrested and brought in for further questioning regarding Kimberly's death. This time around, though, his answers were the complete opposite from what he had told officers on the day prior. According to his statement, Prince, a.k.a. Frank, now admitted to picking Kimberly up on the morning of the 5th. He went on to say that she had actually flagged him down for a ride, and when she got in his vehicle, this is when he noticed that she was bleeding, in which she told him she fell out of a moving car. As stated in the appeals documents, Prince then said when he dropped Kimberly off, she wasn't feeling good, in which he offered to call authorities for help, but she denied any type of medical attention. Prince then added that when he got home, he realized he had blood on his shoes and in his car, so he cleaned it up and initially stated he never touched Kimberly at all. But Prince's account of events that he explained on this day would not eventually add up for him, and that's because the DNA that was found on Kimberly's body came back as a match to him. And it was also consistent partially with the DNA that was under Kimberly's fingernails, which horrifically indicated that he sexually assaulted her. 40-year-old Prince was officially arrested for the murder, along with the special circumstance of murder in the course of rape, of 23-year-old Kimberly Robertson. And in November of 2015, over a year after her death, he officially went to trial. Now, in trial, Prince gave yet another story, 
And this time around, according to an article from the Enterprise Record, him and his defense basically tried to say that, no, he was not the person who murdered Kimberly, but he did admit to having consensual sex with her. In Prince's testimony, he went on to say that Kimberly was in fact a sex worker who he paid, I believe it was $200, to have sex with that morning. He claimed that he initially lied in his original conversations with detectives only because on that day, him and his wife, who he was out with earlier, got into an argument about him being with other women. Local news station KRON4 reported from the trial that Prince's wife had actually threatened to leave him during their argument that they had, in which he didn't want it to come out that he had cheated on her with what he referred to as a prostitute. I must also add that reporting from Patch.com, in addition to the Court of Appeals paperwork, state that there was another unidentified male's DNA found on Kimberly, which can obviously create reasonable doubt. But even though this was the case, and although the defense tried to continuously paint a picture that Kimberly was this young girl who was quote-unquote working that morning, that did not sway the jury here. And in less than two hours, Prince was in the end found guilty, and he was convicted of both first-degree murder and the special circumstance of murder during the course of rape. Kimberly's iPhone was ultimately never recovered, which the prosecution believes Prince took it in addition to taking her jewelry. He already admitted himself to concealing some parts of the physical evidence that could have been found by cleaning his vehicle, but one thing Prince did not realize in this case was that Lowe's receipt, which really, in my opinion, did help with capturing him. Although the prosecution is not fully aware of what made Kimberly get in the car with Prince that morning, at the end of the day, they feel he knew exactly what he wanted from her, and he was going to get it by any means necessary. To me, this is just a horrendous case, and I feel for Kimberly's loved ones who had to learn how her life was taken from them and from her own child. We also can't forget to mention Danny, who was with her that night, who I would only imagine feels this different type of guilt for them arguing, and not to mention how he was considered a person of interest very early on and what that must have felt like for him. This case is just dark and evil. And while we really don't know the motive For me, just to add my two cents in here before I wrap this episode up, and this is just my opinion, not facts, but as the prosecution feels, I could see anger coming from Prince's end after an argument with his wife, who probably or maybe was accusing him of being with other women, or maybe he wasn't happy in his relationship with her. Um... And I could also imagine Kimberly just wanting to go home after she had this night of arguing with Danny and having drinks in her system and just wanting to get away from it all. And maybe Prince came across as a nice man who could just take her home. 
It's possible that he came on to her. Maybe Kimberly turned him down. This is something we will never know. We will never know the facts facts. But in the end, evil preyed on her. And it's really just quite senseless that this even happened, period. In December of 2015, just weeks after he stood his trial, 41-year-old Prince, a.k.a. Frank, was ultimately sentenced to life in prison. 